Hi, my name is Dana Gonzalez. You're listening to the CinePod, the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. All right, Ben, I know that there was some urgency you want to talk about immediately dive into our close focus. But before we do that, we should mention that the incredibly talented Dana Gonzalez is on the show. Holy crap. And Dana is going to have to wait for just a minute because I know you got some stuff you got to get off your chest. So take us into the close focus today, Ben. What's going on? All right. Well, as we're recording this, the Oscars concluded, I don't know, maybe an hour ago. Uh, all I want to say about the Oscars is what the fuck with the Oscars? What happened? It looked like uh it 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 was like a found footage film it, it it looked like they hired a bunch of public access channel interns to film it on their phones what was going on Could, do you have any insight as to why the oscars looked like worse than they have looked since the advent of video i got one insight but i'm gonna have to gene siskel to your roger ebert here i actually really liked the the way the oscars looked and um, what yes there are some moments in particular which are uh, shaky shaky cam and i got the feeling that uh and there's a lot of handheld in it but um look i'm okay with handheld they do handheld at the regular oscars i think all the time but it was like it like the lighting was weird and it looked like the cameras were set at the wrong frame rate or the wrong shutter speed or something like everything looked super weird about the oscars yeah how did you watch it did you watch it via broadcast uh yes abc via cable okay i watched it via terrestrial antenna and there was some definite compression going on. But for the most part, I actually thought it looked pretty good. And I didn't really have a problem with the cadence at all. I did that. that was not something I, I saw it was an issue. I'm wondering if it was more on the cable operator end that came to you. Uh, uh, possibly. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it might be possible. But like, I mean, and look, I understand. And uh, as anyone who's listened to me for the last year and change will know, I have all the sympathy in the world for uh, COVID-19. And I think all kinds of COVID-19 safety protocols uh, need to be maintained. But I honestly had a really hard time even watching the Oscars. Like they they went to a shot like where obviously I was very excited about watching the cinematography uh, award. And congratulations to friend of the show, Eric Messerschmidt or as they said on the show, Eric Messenger Smith. Yeah, uh, you know, in the after party, they pull Eric aside too, uh, and he's sitting down there. And uh, the question to him is, "What was the first thing that goes through your head when they called your name?" And he was extremely diplomatic and gave an answer. But my answer in my living room was, "You said my name wrong." <laughs> yeah, Halle Berry. Like, you said my name wrong. So. And, but but it's like, so that shot of Halle Berry, it looked like uh, we were standing, you know, fifteen feet away from her, about five or six feet below her eye line, looking up at one of the most beautiful human beings on earth. And there wasn't at first even enough light on her face. And I'm like, hey, what if we lit the the movie star? What if we pointed a light at the movie star before we pointed the camera at her? I got to agree with you. There's a, quite a few spots where I think they wanted it to feel maybe more immediate, less stodgy. And so they're doing these like awards sort of conversations from the middle of the floor. And because it wasn't so set up and because it wasn't so lit and it wasn't so broadcast with a broadcast 
team. I'm sure, I mean, a couple times I noticed that uh, a lot of things were out of focus and it didn't seem like the camera was that far away. So I'm guessing they used larger format cameras. I think I saw an Amira or once or twice during this. So uh, I think they were really trying for a different look and trying for a different vibe. And overall, I actually think they succeeded. Overall, I really liked the oh, awards, man. but there are, there I are do many not times agree at all. Oh God, <laughs> there are I many don't times let me get there are many times where yes it doesn't have uh it doesn't have the look that you expect from the oscars it doesn't have necessarily all the spit and polish it is a covid pandemic year but that is a huge cavernous room too and to my understanding is it was a historic room so uh, that whole set that they built that everyone was on i imagine that's gonna have to have been carefully carefully built and reinforced because they can't damage or bolt anything in there i don't think i think that place uh, in, in union station has been around forever and i i think that Every time movies come through there, they have to be extremely careful of like the the light fixtures in the ceiling mm. and everything else. It's like I, I don't know how much they could bring in. I actually thought those little things on the tables at first were like little extras for like fill lights until I saw the other side of them. And so I was like, oh, there's no there's no light. By the way, out of that. Y- you mentioned but, the tables. Yeah. And like on the tables, people just had their stuff like there's your purse and your <laughs> phone and your drink on the table. And I, I mean, like it didn't have the the pop of a look of something like, uh, you know, the the Comedy Central roast of Charlie Sheen. It didn't have that okay. zazz to it. And it felt completely informal and just messy. Isn't Steven Soderbergh involved in, in these uh, Academy Awards? Didn't he have some influence? Wasn't he like the, the, the director for the Academy Awards or the, the overall Was he? architect? I, I, I had heard did he that. have them? Uh, did he have everybody shooting them on iPhone 7s or something? Like what let, was going let, let's on see. there? Uh, Oscars 2021 co-produced by Steven Soderbergh. So, yeah. And, and you know, I got to say that uh, there there's moments that I quite enjoyed. Like when Lee Isaac Chung, he's getting his name read. And because of the camera angle, you actually get to see like his wife reach under the table and hold his hand it's like mm-hmm. a, that was like a really sweet tender thing that you don't see in the you don't usually see in the the big oscar telecast when they're all packed into the kodak theater and it's rows and rows of seats i i thought that despite uh some technical issues and and definitely there was a couple of iris or exposure changes or things that happened and uh, it was kind of a wacky uh, awards, but I got to say that I loved every minute of it. And I thought that Quest Love was great. And I thought that like, you know, I, I really appreciated sort of what I think was trying to happen there. I will tell you the thing that didn't work for me, which I think is a was possibly the, the biggest problem was moving best picture before the best leading actor category. So, best well, you know why that was? A, no. This is my understanding is they put best actor last because they suspected Chadwick Boseman was going to win best actor. Yes. And I think that would have brought down the house. I think it would have been like incredibly effective and, had that happened. But but do you know this to didn't. be true or is this a theory? Because we had the same thought and conversation in my living room watching this. Do you know that for a fact that that's I don't know that for it? a fact that that was okay. what I had heard. But, you know, and like, look, Sir Anthony Hopkins, one of the finest actors who's ever lived, one of my favorite actors, just an amazing performer. I feel like of all years, this is the year that they can't point to Oscars so white, like, you know, so, so many people of color won awards. And but at the same time, it probably would have been amazing for Chadwick Boseman to win uh, posthumously. And you sort of expect it after, you know, when, when, when someone's life is cut short like that. And all these other award shows, too, where all these other awards that have, have been 
bestowing like, honors to him. It's you know, it, it, it and felt it's like, like the gimme. It really felt like a gimme. Definitely shades of Heath Ledger. Yeah, yeah. You, ex- I, I expected it. I was actually like when I looked at who was nominated for best actor, I I assumed that he would get it. Just you know, the posthumous thing like puts it over the top, and he's such a beloved actor and and cut off so young. You know, I love the ca- father. The father's great. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to argue with Anthony Hopkins winning any award. He he deserves all the awards. But anyway, I had heard that that was the expectation. So they'd put best actor last, which, uh, wow. I mean, just, and that's, and that's why it just feels like such an off note. And two, you have uh, Francis McDormand doing a wolf howl, like moments before when she is up there, it's like, it was a really sort of like jarring, just sort of like drop off ending. And Anthony Hopkins is not even here and good night. So yeah. Yeah. Super, super, super weird. I'm going to say, if not the worst Oscars, definitely the weirdest. And it's hard to beat the year that La La Land won and then didn't win. And yeah. And then Moonlight won. All right. I might be in the minority here. I I don't, I haven't talked to anyone else about it. This award show just ended, but I really enjoyed it. I liked how different it was and I liked how refreshed it felt. And I liked how it didn't take itself too seriously during the pandemic. I thought that was great. And Glenn Close effing killed it. She effing killed her, her, her bit. She always does. All the, all the people up there are total pros (laughs) and amazing. It was just the presentation of it, the stage management of it the lighting of it the cinematography of it really bummed me out it made it hard for me and also the sound like and i understand it's harder to control sound there but the sound was distractingly bad just remember that the same guy who made schizopolis was the co-producer of the academy awards <laughs> so there you go he also made many movies that i love uh anyway <laughs> um <laughs> But I, oh, I definitely wow. want to say a, a huge congratulations. Steven Soderbergh crossing us off his to show to go on list right now. So. He, I, what do you mean? I love so many of his movies. But um, he's in so many of his other films. So <laughs> I, to make it sound I, like you. I'm, I'm not the world's biggest fan of Schizopolis, but, uh, you know, whatever. I think that I could definitely have a conversation with Soderbergh that would go on for hours and hours and hours about all of his work that I think is amazing, including some movies that maybe are a little bit more obscure, like the Limey. Anyway. Uh, hey, I, I, I definitely I definitely want to extend a humongous congratulations to Eric Messerschmidt. And I remember when we were interviewing him, I said something to him and I, I don't remember exactly what I said, but I think I said I would be shocked if his work was not nominated for best cinematography. And uh, he's an extraordinarily humble guy and very, very down to earth. And he kind of on the Zoom, I think he kind of gave me a look of like, really? Like. You know, <laughs> kind of wasn't expecting it. So I was uh, very excited to see Eric Messerschmidt win. And, and I know you didn't bring it up. You're far too humble yourself here to, to bring this up. But didn't you also pick Mank to win in our episode just a few days ago with Janelle Riley? I did. I did. And I actually felt like it was kind of a dark horse, although I had my reasons why I thought it might win Best Cinematography. But, you know, chief among them is it looks freaking amazing. Not that the other nominees all don't look great. But I, I felt like Mank had a couple of things going for it. One, the Academy is a sucker for great black and white. Two, I didn't think it was going to win Best Picture, but it's a movie about the film industry, which the industry always loves. And so often when a movie is like beloved by the industry, but the winds aren't blowing in the direction of Best Picture, it'll win a different award like Best Actor or Best, not usually Best Director and not, and, and not Best Picture, but Best Cinematography is an award that it might get. And I feel like Fincher's work in Hollywood is just, you know, so profound and so deep and has been going on for so long that it would be weird for a movie like this to not win something. 
Um, mm. But also, but above and beyond everything, I just thought it looked amazing. Like I thought that the the look of that movie was so captivating and brilliant, and I was excited as hell to interview Eric Messerschmidt. And I'm I'm glad he won, and I'm sorry that his name got mispronounced. Uh, again, that's something <laughs> that I don't blame on Halle Berry. That's that stage management. Like that all should have been rehearsed. Like they everybody should have known how to pronounce everything. Everyone should have known all their marks. Yeah, that's kind of how it goes. And I definitely got the feeling that Halle Berry was seeing that those names for the first time just then at that moment. Everybody so. looked like they were seeing their names for the first time. So, I mean, to me, it, it I don't know. I'm going to leave it at that. I hope I'm not making anyone mad who uh, produces the Oscars. <laughs> if somebody would like to come on our show and explain to me why I'm wrong, I'd love to hear from them, including Steven Soderbergh. You can come on here and personally tell me that I'm an idiot. I'm good. But I just had an impossible time with that. I thought, you know, congratulations to everybody who won. And I thought think they all deserved a better show wow okay i still quite liked it anyway so hey, let, <laughs> it's time to get to the interview with uh dana gonzalez of, of course hey, ben remind our listeners about some of the work that dana gonzalez is doing right now some of the the, the incredible stuff uh, Dana Gonzalez has like an amazing filmography of a lot of television, a lot of great television, most recently shooting and directing the majority of the Fargo TV series, which if you haven't seen it, get on that. That show is amazing and beautiful and uh, and, and captures the, the tone of the original Coen Brothers movie so perfectly and then builds on it. He also shot Greenland, the movie that a uh, giant action movie that came out this year. But yeah, that's some of his work. But he's, you know, Longmire. He's, he's got an amazing uh career all right so let's get to the interview with dana gonzalez the cinematography podcast interview all right so we are here today with dp and director dana gonzalez thank you so much for coming on the show dana yeah it's really really great you know you guys have had such great past guests and that that interests me and so uh i'm interested to see what you guys uh get out of me (laughs) oh can't wait can't wait (laughs) And Ilya just reminded us, you were requested specifically by a fan. Like, we were asked to reach out to you. So, uh, or I shouldn't say a fan, a listener. I don't know that we have fans. Do we have fans, Ilya? Uh, we got some hardcore fans out there. Right. And and yeah, I will say that we get requests fairly on the regular. And I will say, though, that uh, Dana's request was impassioned. They had written, like, a, a very long email to us about how we, they thought that he would be perfect for the show. And so I'm really excited that now we get to, to be in wish fulfillment mode. We get to see, uh, you know, how it goes. It'll be great. So, uh, you know, your work is amazing and some of your uh, more recent work is stuff like Greenland and Fargo and Legion. You've just done some really gorgeous stuff. But I kind of want to start by sort of with my generic opener, which is what's your process? You're handed a script. How do you start the process of trying to figure out and break it down and turn it into whatever pictures you're going to make out of it? Yeah, you know, I work in a very fortunate situation where the last uh, seven seasons of television were all unique. And Fargo, every year, is a different story, a different set of characters, different look. Legion, every year was, uh, every season was a different world. So a lot of world building going on. So the good thing is, is that at the beginning of every one of these seasons, I basically have to come up with a look and kind of aesthetic process that 
you know, mm-hmm. the show will be that season. And that's kind of where, how it always starts. So it's unlike doing season two of a show that just has a theme, uh, you know, the, the same kind of character arc or something like that, or episode 18 of a 26 episode season where you're you know not to be confused with chapter 18 of legion which is uh you know one of your fan favorites yeah well chapter you know um legion even though they were consecutive chapters were that was over three seasons and three different Mm -hmm. worlds like three completely different worlds that took place in and and every season the aesthetics changed they just did there was always a different approach to it meaning you know if if there was different lenses used or a different maybe lighting presentation, all the sets were different. So that always kind of informs new aesthetics and new lighting, you know, and then like Fargo being completely new characters. And, you know, Fargo is a show that that evolved from season one where we're paying really close homage to the movie. Then we started earning our right to change things a little bit and add a little bit and go get a a little bit away from maybe the exact Fargo storytelling, where season four is kind of like, we just kind of said, you know what, we're going to do whatever we want to do. And we changed the way we lensed it. We're always flexing our muscles a little bit and and bringing in new ways to, to tell the story. And season four being the oldest period, uh, 1950s in Chicago, it was supposed to be 1950s Kansas, and, you know, how to really pull that off and put the audience in that space. And, and for me, you know, I guess to, to go back to the original question you have, I'm always interested in putting the audience in a certain emotional place. Like, mm-hmm. it's very important to me. And sometimes that's color of light. Sometimes that's in subjective, objective camera. Sometimes that's in the way the, the camera's moving. I mean, do, I don't know if you saw Pieces of the Woman. Have you seen that film yet? I have not seen that one. Okay, the, that like Benjamin Loeb, who shot it, did an incredible job with this. The camera is, it's kind of moving the whole time. You know, like the first 20 something minutes is is this one big single shot, but it, it really works. And then the whole movie kind of has this thing going with it that really helps and changes the mood, stabilizes, eradicates the mood. The mood, And that's that interests me. So like when I... I don't know how others read a script. When I read a script, I always see visuals every single time. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I see I see visuals and story points that aren't even there. So sometimes I'll read a script. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and then I'll say later, oh, did this happen? And they're like, no, 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 that didn't happen. But I'm like, somehow to me, it was like, of course it happened because it it's that's the way it should be or something like that. So <laughs> what what that does to Which me... Which explain, explains your move into directing. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely with directing, now I could really implement some of those thought processes a little bit better. But, you know, even as a, as a DP, and especially on the shows I work on, and, and most directors that I worked with came in knowing that I, um, I carried a lot of the creative flow forward. I, I carry the, the, the look and tone of the show forward and I keep, I maintain it. You know, they relied on me. So like if, if I did bring up something like that, they would, you know, they would probably listen to me about it. But I always read the script and, and sometimes I see the possibilities. And that's the thing that, mm-hmm. that now I'm, I'm convincing people of the possibilities. Because maybe even we could read something in a script and, and of course, we have to fit it into a, a budget. We have to fit it into a timetable, right? So, for instance, uh, Fargo season four, episode uh, nine, I think it is that now, the black and white, there's a tornado. I don't know if you've seen mm-hmm. that episode. Well, when you read that you're doing a tornado sequence for a TV show and... It's a little bit like The Wizard of Oz. How do you do that? 
you don't just throw it all into a visual effects world and say, oh, you you know, you deal with it. We'll just shoot this against a green screen. That was going to be my question. It'd be like, yeah, you let the nerds handle it. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, that, I don't. I mean, I guess I, mean, <laughs> I, I definitely seen some people just do that. But for me, you know, again, there's a audience experience that's about to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a lead up to the main event. There's a, an aftermath of this affected event. And all that needs to, to work together. I mean, the whole episode up to that climatic ending, it all has to seamlessly work together and, and you have to build it. And you, know, and you have to be conscious of every single shot and every single frame leading up to that. You know, mm. t- TV is a very insidious formula because Every day on television could potentially be a huge amount of real-time storytelling. So if you have like a a day where you just phone it in or two days where you just phone it in or you compromise two-thirds of the day, that sometimes is seven minutes of screen time. Well, seven minutes of screen time for today's viewer is a lot. In seven minutes, there's a lot of things that they want from them, you know, and it could be as, as like the last seven minutes were the, as slow as molasses. You know what I mean? They literally like people today, when they see a beginning of a, a movie or, or an episode in seven minutes, like you have to gone somewhere. Like if in seven minutes you were just sitting there on the bed reading a letter, they would turn it off. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. I mean, like when I, when I look at the shows that you're shooting, Fargo and, and Legion and stuff, like these are not phoned in kind of shows, and they're uh, the constr- the visual construction of them is on par with anything you'd see in in a movie theater. Really, like I, I, you're obviously you probably have way less time to shoot all that stuff, but that doesn't mean that the thought behind it isn't uh, just as constructed. It doesn't feel like you just you know said, okay, wide shot, close up, close up, hose yeah. it down, boys, and move on. You yeah. you know, everything feels like it's got a real purpose. And that, to me, is one of the marks of modern television in general, but, like, what what makes today's television so great? Yeah, no, listen, I mean, it's daunting. I mean, we we all have different days. Some days, some people have seven days to an episode. Some have eight. Some have 14. Some reshoot. Some, you know, all these things. I can tell you that, you know, you really need a strong leader from the top being the showrunner and producers. I mean, if they're, if they're on board for greatness and now you, you put a cinematographer and and team with that same mission, you're going to get greatness. If the cinematographer wants to do a lot and the producers don't, you're going to struggle. And that I'd say that's more the norm. And you do have DPs out there just fighting for, you know, to get everything on the screen. And, and uh, I mean, even in episodic, it's, you know, you have directors coming in sometimes that just want to kind of get it done. And, you know, you were like, no, no, we're going to, we're going to make this great because that's what we do. You're always up against it. So again, I'm in a very fortunate situation with the, with the people I work with, which makes it hard for me to take other jobs because, uh, you know, everybody talks about that's, what they want for their project. But when you really get into it and you start dealing with money and time, everybody kind of has their their views about that. First ADs have their their views along about how much something's going to, time something's going to take. Line producers yeah. are worried about money. And for me, it's like, I like the challenges. I like, I, I like the challenges of the unknown. I like to be uncomfortable. And if anybody, you talk to anybody that works with me, I especially like camera operators or anything, I like when they're uncomfortable I'm not meaning <laughs> that I'm yelling at them and, and whatever, and you know, but I mean doing things that they've never done. Yeah. And like, like you in the, in the film business, you hear a lot. It's like, Oh, this is how we do it. Or, you know, do you want me to do this? Cause, because that's like the next progressive thing to do. Well, I'm not interested in that. 
I'm interested in the unknown. I'm interested in failing. I'm really interested in failing. <laughs> uh, you know, because, I mean, again, we talked about it a little bit before the show started, but everybody that is at least on my level, I assume they're all technically proficient. And so, you know, we all can make a great image. So now, like, how do we make a, a great image that challenges ourselves and gives the audience a new feeling. I mean, to me, like, it, you know, I think that today with today's television and today's in all media, if you can make an audience member feel differently than they've ever felt before, mm. that's amazing. And I think like if we think about the images or the, the moments in cinema that we can all talk about, it's always about, it's always a feeling. It really is. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a, it's dialogue based, but it's always, a, it's always a feeling. It's always how it made you feel. And, and, and that's why you remember it. And maybe it was funny. Maybe it was sad. Uh, maybe it was just, just thought provoking and it just stuck in your gut. Well, that doesn't just happen because of one thing that doesn't happen just because of the great writing. I mean, great writing is a, is a huge part of it, but it's also how you capture that and how you execute it. And a lot of times they're steeped in originality. And I think that TV in 20 years ago was never known for its big artistic leaps and bounds. Today, the tables have turned. I mean, TV yeah. is, is like leading the way in probably artistic creative expression for artists. And that's why you have huge actors and, and directors and, and all kinds of other filmmakers getting involved in it because you're able to tell, let's say, a 10 episode. You're able to tell a 10 hour story and really flesh out characters. Um, and then you have all these just incredible visuals that people are creating that people are responding to, you know, the Queen's Gambit, it, it, you know, people are responding to the way they sure. they made that show and Steve, what Stephen Meisler did and Mindhunter. And just, just these are just like, oh, yeah. like all these shows now, the visual component is as important as the writing and the lead actor. I mean, it, 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 it all goes hand in hand, but it's like if Mindhunter had 25 year old television quality, I don't think people would be talking about it. It's like the visuals give it this incredible foundation to hold it up and really make you be able to listen and, and see the scenes and feel a certain way. And it's just, it's just like this incredibly strong foundation. And that's been exciting. And, and I started basically doing features as a, I was a camera assistant for uh, many, many years, a focus puller. And I always, I did mostly features in those days. And I always thought that I was just going to transition to features, you know, as a DP. And so my first jobs were, tele, were, were features. Um, and then I, I just kind of didn't really want to get involved in television. And somehow about 2009, I kind of started doing television and thought I was just going to do a pilot or two and in and out. And then the landscape changed, the way we could tell stories changed, and then the writing changed, and, and the way that the audience responded to what was happening changed. And then I met Noah Hawley and, you know, a person that just kind of pushes for creative expression and found my home. Mm -hmm. I try things all the time that if they don't work, we can always reshoot it, I guess. I was going to ask you about that because yeah. when you do high risk stuff that you haven't done before, yeah. sometimes it's just not going to work out. I did a, a scene on Legion that it was, it was supposed to be in Platonomy's, uh, one of the characters, Mind Space, right? It mm -hmm. was like, and this show was already like you were in, in any one episode, you were in five different worlds. You were in Memories of Memories or... I know it's so uh, bonkers. Right, it's, it's, right, it's, it's, right. I can't imagine looking at the script and understanding how it how it was going to turn out the way that it did. Oh, it's so, it, was, it was crazy. It's insane. Like, 
yeah, yeah. the tone meetings and concept meetings of that show where I'll probably never be in a situation like that ever again. I mean, it was inspired by uh, by Bill Sinkowitz, the comic book guy who uh, yeah. wrote really way out comic yeah. books, like stray toasters and stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, we were trying, you know, we had a visual effects world, but we were trying to be more practical. So on one particular scene, I stacked low-con filters. I, I use a lot of filtration and I, I use like a, a low-con seven and like a low-con eight or something like, like, I don't even know where you mm. get those kind of filters because I wanted it to have this ethereal feeling. And I know most people say you could do that in, um, you could do that in post. No, no, you can't. You can't fuck up an image like we can in front of a camera in post. You can. Mm. I figure if they made a low-con eight and a low-con seven, they were meant to be used, right? And today people, you know, talk talk about filtration sometimes and they'll say, I use a quarter promist. Like, I don't use a quarter anything. I to me it it, 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 it it's, you know to me go big or go home. No, it starts it's not, it starts at two. You know, I mean, it, you know, <laughs> you know, it's just because that's that's to me where like things start getting affected, and and I think like even taking <laughs> filters out of the equation, that's the kind of painter's stroke that I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to leave that up to post-production or visual effects because that's where you're going to get really disappointed. Because even even if the visual effects supervisor supports you 100%, once mm-hmm. they get into the editing room, once they get into a, a, a time crunch, once they get into episode nine of a 10-episode uh, series, they're running out of money. So yeah. if I forced my visual down their throat, then that's what they have to use. Uh, now, now, now maybe that's not for everybody, but I think anybody could take a risk. I think, you know, uh, again, it's a calculated risk. I, I think people have been doing that. I think people used to do that more in film, like I said, because they had to. And yeah. now in the digital world now, we're, we're, it's just because also people are watching things on the screen instantly. Like, you know, you have producers and everybody's kind of chime, people can chime in, I suppose. That's where it gets crazy. I did the show. It was like my first kind of, I did the pilot for it. And then I shot the first season and a half of it called Pretty Little Liars. How I got the job was I, I said, beautiful people in dark places. Because it was li- literally about like these four good looking girls and, and even the parents. and everybody, They were like all good looking actors. And I knew that's the way yeah. it was going to be. It was like 90210 in like in darkness. And at that time, it had never, it, no one was doing that. Yeah. That's and, cool. I, th- and that was my pitch, right? And if they didn't do it, they didn't do it. And I didn't do it. That's fine. But we did it. So that was another show where, believe it or not, I, I got to really express myself. And I did constantly. And, and the first season, um, I'm sure you have some viewers that watched it. The first season was a breakthrough. It, was, it, it transformed ABC Family, that free form, it's called Freeform now. It, it literally, yeah transformed their entire network so there was this one scene and it was a it, it was a memory it was like a like a flashback memory thing and i thought about it all weekend and i came in and i didn't even i didn't ask anybody i didn't tell them what, i just said this is what i'm gonna do i brought all these view cameras medium format view camera where you have the where yeah, you look, yeah you look through the glass you so look like, straight I, down i had, the, a, I had well like, i had a roloflex i had like a mamiya and i set them all up and I had three cameras and I shot the entire scene through these cameras. 
So I, I basically, and I did like, you know, 13, 14 shots. There wasn't just one shot. It wasn't one, it was, yeah. it was, a, it was an entire scene. And I just told the director, this is what I'm going to do. And they're like, looking at, <laughs> looking at me. And, and I, again, I had at that moment of that show, I had a huge amount of creative license because I'd already proven to myself. One of the strongest elements of the show was the visuals. So they let me do it. And I think it turned out incredible. It's in, it's in the show. We got a we got a, a comment from a, a letter a couple days later from the studio, and they said, "Just don't do that again." <laughs> <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, I would do it again. And and, and today, if if we had this scene right now, it would be very people would be like, "What? It's great because I mean, this was two thousand nine. There's a big difference between two thousand nine television and two thousand twenty uh, television. For sure. But to me, that was like. I wanted it to feel that way. I knew like it's going to create an image, right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to be focusing on those screens that are actually focused on the image. And look, I, I, it's going to turn out to be something. I, and I think it's going to be turn out to be great. And it, and it did. And I would do it again. I would have done it again on that show, regardless of that memo. You know, when it's they fired me, they fired me. Well, it's interesting, too, because like when you're a regular uh, DP on a series, I always wonder if to a degree you might have more of a creative influence over the course of the series than any given director unless you're on a show that has like you know only one or two directors but like shows where there are guest directors they're coming in but you know what the show looks like yeah i mean look look some shows may not have a, a look but they you know they they all have a they all have a, maybe a lensing style right it could be like we, yeah. we do everything with long lenses we all handheld we shake the camera you know on Fargo, we don't do handheld, so you can't you can't come in there and say, "Oh, I want to make this whole sequence handheld." It's not going to happen. We're, mm -hmm. we're not gonna, we're not going to do it. So you know, most directors understand that. I mean, uh, some come in sometimes, and, and day one, they're like, "Put up the 150 mil," and you're like, "We we don't even have one." You know, uh, you know, on Fargo, <laughs> our, our longest lens used to be a 40. Uh, you know, it was oh like, wow, it was like 27, <laughs> 27 and 40 were were the the kind of the wheelhouse for the show. And so a long lens, like like a 150 or something, that would be like some really strong voyeuristic perspective, you know, at, at that level where some shows live on a 150 because that's the look of the show, you know. So yes, directors need to come in and, and respect that. And, and now with um, shows being, having such visual strength, a Mr. Robot or, or something like that, where yeah. they're using, you're, they're using these visuals for strong storytelling. Like if, if they were to shoot an episode of Mr. Robot that was conventional lensing and conventional coverage, the audience would go berserk. They, they would be like, what the you'd hell You'd be waiting happened? for the weird payoff at the end. You'd be like, you'd be waiting to find out that the whole episode took place in somebody's mind. Right, 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 right. It took, took place in a sitcom or something. You know, they yeah. would be like, <laughs> they would be, they would go berserk. And that again, 25 years ago, really didn't exist. But today, I mean, I think your podcasts like yours do so well and exist because of the sophistication of your listeners about how they feel about cinematography and visuals mm. and, and storytelling. And sometimes I think a lot of people who call them cinematographers out there, they're probably directors. Uh, we're definitely going to get into that because I think that that's all also, uh, you know, an important thing because, you know, probably a lot of our listeners are either on the fence about being a DP or a director or, you know, they're interested in both or whatever if they if they haven't if they're not already working. But I, I kind of want to go way, way, way back. Uh, you talked about being a camera assistant, but I sort of want to know when did it first occur to you that this was a career path that you could follow? 
I mean, had you gone to film school or did, did I you, hadn't did gone you to film st- school? I knew I liked photography and, and I knew that I, I was unemployable and I knew that I couldn't work in a, no- <laughs> in a, in a normal industry. And the first day when I showed up on the set, what really attracted me was there was like a circus environment and I knew I, I had found my home. But the moment, the defining moment, I think, was I started loading the film for the job, it became the film loader, it was, those were the film days. And I was at home at my house, I lived at home, and I was loading, I was practicing loading film in a changing bag on my parents' kitchen table. And I told my parents, this is what I'm gonna do for the rest of my life. Oh, wow. Based on the overall feeling I had about the craziness I just loved every bit of it. I love it. How did, how did you I find yourself on this? I mean, like you don't randomly end up on a film crew. How did you end up on that, on that crew? Now, my father had a custom car shop and he was working on these, uh, this producers, they had this big truck. They were having a big window installed in the side of their truck with this big door. So they could do scenes in front of like man's Chinese theater without paying a permit fee. <laughs> so it, it, so it was like it was like Bowfinger, right? It was a little bit of like Bowfinger. It was like they literally like we would we would bring the we would drive up and they would put the camera and they would open up and there'd be a piece of glass like two way glass maybe I forgot what it was, and then this they would have uh, the actors in front of Man's Chinese Theater and doing a scene and we wouldn't pay the permit fee. That's so funny. I you know I guess in in those days we you know licensing things wasn't so important I suppose. And so they were getting this work done. I happened to be visiting my father's business the day they were picking up the truck. And my dad had been telling me about these guys for a while because their truck was there for a while. And I kept saying, I grew up in, in LA, in Los Angeles. He kept telling me about them and maybe I should talk to them. I'm like, no, they're too low budget. I didn't even know what that meant. I just, when you grow up in, in LA, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you know, you see the, these big studio films, right? And then, especially yeah. in those days, because those days there was there was studio films, and there was B films, like a, a Roger Corman film, like a yeah. bad Roger Corman film, and there was nothing in really in between. So I'm just like these guys are these guys are low budget, I, you know, and 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 I didn't even know what that meant. So the day they're picking it up, I was there. My dad introduced me to the producer, and they said they're looking for someone to drive the truck. And I said, when does it start? They said tomorrow at five thirty in the morning. Now. I was a bit of a surf bum fuck up in those days. And the fact that I said, yes, I will wake up at 5.30 in the morning and go get, pick up your truck and drive it to the set was a miracle because I, had, I did not have a great track record of waking up in those days when I was 20 years old. If the surf was three to four, I was gonna blow it off and go surfing. But somehow I woke up at 5.30 in the morning Got the truck. The first set was Hollywood and Highland. There was a hotel there called Hollywood Terrace Hotel. It's not there anymore. And it was 7.30 in the morning and I had to back it into this alley and I stopped traffic, backed the truck up, opened the door and then the circus started. And literally I was just, that was the first kernel. And I'm just like, holy shit, this is crazy. And it was like, just people bringing equipment out, people walking by with costumes, like these, those kind of actor type people walking around. And then we shot, we started shooting. And I called my best friend at the time. And I said, I'll get you a job. You got to come down here. He came down, I got him a job. And we spent the next four months learning how to make films. He's still in the business. I'm still in the business. A lot of people probably have that story of that era about just these low budget films that 
that people just bled the producers, you know, and it was like about a paycheck. I mean, we used to have to line up every Friday to get paid from these guys. And we'd have to go like a big line and we'd go in the office and the guy, they would start asking us questions like, why do you think you earn this money and all this stuff? And, you know, and it, oh, really? we, would, we would drink beer the whole time. It, it was just, it was a different, very romantic time in my, in my career. I, I loved, I loved every, every, every minute of every situation of every low budget fucked up job I ever did in my life. I worked a job once. I, it was Bloodsport 2. I don't care who knows. Uh, and I, I, was the assist, I was the assistant makeup artist on it. And we were shooting in Thailand. And I'd never been out of the country. And the director was this guy named Alan Marez. And my rate was 400 a week. So if you have a time machine and you want to hire me in 1995, that's how much you can get me for. And, and so we're there. And the way to get paid was you had to like go to the hotel bar and just run into Alan and say, like, hey, Alan, I haven't been paid this week. And yeah. he's like, how much, is you, how much you get? And then you tell him, you know, 400 a week plus whatever it was, $10 a day per diem. And he would pull this giant wad of cash out of his pocket. And then he'd be like, can you just write down on this napkin that I gave you this money? Yeah. Every week, every yeah. week of that shoot, I had to like randomly run. And every crew member had to just randomly run into the director in the bar yeah. and say like, and he would literally just pay you in cash every week. It was super weird. But it, you had fun, right? It was it was a blast. And the lead was a guy <laughs> named Daniel Bernhardt, who like yeah. you see Daniel Bernhardt in like every Keanu Reeves movie with a giant fight scene. Daniel is one of the people he's he's uh, either beating up or getting beat up. And he was the lead and he, he was wonderful. The movie was a was kind of a clusterfuck. But, uh, you know, it was the first crew walkout I ever participated in. Lots of fun like that. Yeah. Actually, the last crew walkout. I've never been on a crew walkout since then. Led by the DP, Jacques Heitken, who was yeah. not having it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jack. Yeah. 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 I know him well. Yeah. Yeah. That was, um, look, I, I, you know, it's funny because in those days they used to travel everybody like that. They, the whole, the whole crew was captive in a hotel and, and yeah. all kinds of mischievous things were happening. And today, because all these cities now have crew, only heads of departments really travel. And at the end of the day, people go home to their families and some people go to a hotel. Well, in those days, everybody was in a hotel partying, drinking, <laughs> yeah that's getting, what they were all like being being uh you know losing their infidelity you know all kinds of things so <laughs> yeah the, again those were very romantic times for me i loved every second of it and and believe it or not i, I think those those times informed me for who i am today um i, I urge people again all the time to look we, that's where you want to make mistakes man you're shooting these no budget projects man put it out there on the line and and just yeah. like if you go too far on those or whatever, who cares? I mean, but by the time you get to the the more of the big time, you're ready to take those risks. You're totally prepared. So I I mean, I've always done that maybe stupidly. I wish maybe my career would be better along if I was more conservative earlier on. I I, I don't know. I just don't have it in me. Well, and I mean, I think that your career ends up being an expression of who you are. So, you know, I mean, like the, the stuff you do is bold and, and you got there by by being that way. Now, was it on that first film that you started going like, ooh, cinematography, that's a thing I could do? Or when when did that seed kind of plant itself in your head? Yeah, well, there was a, there was a guy named Peter Polyan who was the Persian DP. And it was funny because he was like, he wasn't exactly the guy that you want to, the model DP. He wore this kind of pantsuit thing and he had this great haircut. He smoked a pipe. I think he I think he had like an ascot or something. He'd always talk in terms of big light. Give me one big light over there, one small light over there. And I'm like, okay. And um, <laughs> so basically I got into the camera department. I was naturally attracted to cameras. Like I, I think the same reason why anybody would be attracted to a camera. I was just attracted to that. 
And so I bought my first still camera, a Nikon FE2. I remember my dad took me down to the Photoshop and I paid $240 for the body and another $85 for the lens and, and, and it was brand new. And, and, you know, he thought that was a huge commitment. And I was just like, I, I need to do this. And then I started taking pictures and believe me, those and, and really making mistakes. Like, you know, it's when you first start taking pictures, you think every picture is like an amazing picture. And then you get it home in those days when you have 36 frames and you get it home and you're lucky if one picture is actually usable and they're, they're all, mm. they all look, they're all terrible. So that kind of sparked that. And then I became a, a pretty successful camera assistant working with a lot of great cinematographers. And then I naturally kind of knew like, look, I want to become a DP. But in those days, becoming a, D, a DP was different than today. And in those days, DPs were a lot older. You know, you worked as a loader, as a first assistant, as an operator, and then you became a DP. That was mm -hmm. kind of the natural thing. Yeah, I guess people would come out of film school, but film schools in those days were, were much smaller and, and much harder to get into than today. So I was an assistant of Focus Puller for 14 years. And I, in that 14 years, I was building my reel. And then one day I just said, I, I have to stop assisting. And, and I became a DP. Uh, you know, that that's a whole nother story in itself. So but, for that whole time, were you like off shooting smaller projects, yeah. short films, music videos the and stuff? Yeah, the, I pretty I pretty much started shooting small shorts and and spec commercials as soon as I humanly could, and hmm. and, be, and believe me, they're there's they're bad, you know. And I and I started, <laughs> you know, and, 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 and you know, but I got to tell you, and I tell people this all the time, reels are like stepping stones, you know. It's like and normally when you're shooting shorts early on in your career, like the storytelling and the content's terrible, like the writing's hmm. terrible, the production design doesn't exist, the actors are are not great. But if I get one job, another job from that job, that's gets me one step closer to my goal. Yeah. And so I just I just kept doing that. And I kept kind of like using all these as, as stepping stones. And and again, every every job, just like I mean, today, I have the same philosophy. Every single job needs to be better than the last one. Every single project needs to resonate. It needs to be it, it really needs to be this artistic statement that I want to put out today, every single yeah. job and every project I do is different. I don't, mm -hmm. I use different lenses. I use different, all kinds of different things. Every script talks to me differently and, and means that I have to, I have to find a way to tell that story. Well, I want to know too, because I feel like you have a, a really, your lighting is just, you know, inspired everything of yours that I've watched. Just the, the lighting really pops. And given that you didn't uh, go to film school and that you were working in the camera department, when and how did you go about picking up your proficiency, not proficiency, but your mastery of lighting? I've always been attracted to art and art museums. It was probably art first and then photography second. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rembrandt and I think Rembrandt had it down when it comes to emotional portraits. I think, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, I, I, I've studied that quite a bit and I'm a big believer in, in single light sources. So uh, if you, if you talk to any gaffer I worked with, they'll tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty crazy about it. Like I like doing as much as I can with one light and taking the light off that refracting off that or whatever it is, the way the light falls. And I do entire scenes without moving that single light. But the light's got to be in the right position, right? It's got to be in one great position, and then you you build the scene off that axis. But to me, that's like a Rembrandt. Uh, you know, a great Rembrandt is there's a single source of light that's coming in, lighting their face, 
hitting the white table, sending a bounce up to the back, giving the little relief to give it dimension. I'm not a big into backlight. Uh, I think backlight is something that is there because it has to be there. Backlight normally is to separate the subject from the background. I mean, it's it's to give it three dimension, it, you know, it's dimensionality. And because if you don't have some separation, then the people will blend into the walls or yeah. there's no there's no pop. I prefer to pick the right background and then separate with the foreground, background, lighting and density. And I, th I just think that that's better. When I first started in the business, key back fill were the, the terms. And like every- Three point lighting, straight old three, three point, point lighting. lighting. That's, but that's yeah. how it was. That's how people did it. I mean, not, not everybody, but that's, that was what they taught, key back fill. Yeah. So when you were constructing a scene, every angle was backlit. I never understood that. I, I'm just like, how that does that's not even how can that be? And um, <laughs> to me, if if I do a single source light and I could do the entire scene without moving that single source light, it's naturally gonna fall in place. It's gonna look great, it's gonna work, the audience is gonna understand. And I think there's a boldness to it. There's a you know, and it forces you to be bold because it it forces you to utilize that source in creative ways. So versus some DPs, like, they, they will light an a, a angle, and then they'll, like, clear everything out, set up the shot, set up the next angle, bring in the lights, shoot it, clear it out, set up the camera, bring all yeah. the lights in. And, and I just, I never understood that because that's a very forced thing. If I think about a scene like a painting, even though a painting is one image, if you were to shoot a scene of Rembrandt painting a, one of his suitors, and you were to shoot more angles of it, the light wouldn't change and it would probably look incredible. That's just how I've always felt. I don't know why I feel that way. That's just why how I feel that way. And, and I drive gaffers crazy until they understand me because I'll, I'll, I'll just say, why don't we just take a um, 18K and stick it 40 feet off to the very back wall of the stage and bring the light in through the window of the set and see what happens. And then now we're shooting the scene and we're not thinking about the lighting, yet the lighting is, is quite beautiful. And the actors are, are in an environment where pace-wise, we're not stopping to relight. The director's able to achieve more shots. Uh, yeah, that was I, my question too, yeah, is yeah. like, I mean, I don't know if, if creating a good single source lighting plot, uh, you know, if executing that idea might take a little longer. I don't, I don't know. It sounds like it wouldn't take longer, but it just sounds like, you know, once you're lit, you're lit, then you can move. Yeah. I mean, it, but does it restrict how much you can move around in that space? No, no, no. I, it's actually the, quite the opposite for me. I, backlight restricts you from moving the camera. Okay. Back Whoa. when you, when you're you blowing my mind at every, everything you say is blowing my mind. This is awesome. No, if you, if you have, if you have, if, if every shot is backlit, good luck coming off access. Where if you watch a show like Legion, the camera is off access all day long. So, uh, you know, if I had just natural backlight, as soon as I came around, I'm in front light and, and it's over. You, you nailed it, though. Finding the perfect angle to support an entire scene with one light could sometimes take a little longer. So sometimes you're nuancing that one light. God forbid you have to hang that one light. If you have to hang that light, that's a whole nother level of time. Yeah, it's a thought process, and uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Like, the minute it works, yeah, I, it works, and the minute it doesn't work, it fails, which is right exactly where I want to be. Uh, I want to be right there. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and people tell me all the time, like, that's not going to work. I'm like, let me fail. 
and people have heard me say this before. I'm just like, please let me fail. You know, I don't know. Maybe this, I understand that, that no one does this for whatever reason, but let me, I want to try it. I think it's going to work. And I think it, and let it, me fail is, a, is, is great advice anyway to, to anyone who wants to like stick their neck out and do something a little differently and getting resistance. You know, it's like, it, it's sort of like saying, I'll take the responsibility for this if it doesn't work. Yeah. I mean, listen, I, I think that I hope today that people are hiring me for that, you know, and, and mm. I mean, I think some people think they are and, and, but you know, some people are like, well, I didn't know if I, I didn't know if I, I didn't know that you were going to do that. I don't get much of that, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't know. I, I, I just think that the, the, the visualists that we, that, you know, your listeners respond to are doing that. They really are. And, and, you know, and, and they're, they're, they're challenging themselves and, and they're, they're, that's why people are responding to their visuals. Uh, I urge, I urge everybody to work that way. Again, I understand that not every project is going to support that. And I, I think that the, that everybody could, could do it in little ways to kind of keep nudging at it. And if they really want to keep pushing boundaries and find that place on each show where, you know, how far you can push. And, you know, I think at the, at the end of the day, you, if you go home and you're questioning yourself and going, man, maybe I pushed it too far this, this day. That's awesome. That I love that. I, I, again, not everybody wants to, to work that way. I, I personally love working that way. I mean, is there a process though, uh, when you're, when you're dealing with a director, for instance, where you kind of have to sell them on doing it like this, because obviously it's going to, to some degree, it's going to dictate the coverage. No. Or is it, is it I mean, all, all the time? I mean, again, I'm, I have to say that I've been very fortunate that I've been able to prove myself early. And I mean, a lot of times some directors don't, they just, they don't come in with anything that heavy. So they're going to appreciate that you have a thought like that. Yeah. <clears throat> but definitely, definitely if someone comes in and says, ah, oh, that this may be too much or the lighting maybe is too bold, or do you think we should, we should back it off a little bit? That's cool. That's, that's a collaborative moment, you know? And yeah. it's like, okay, you pushed it too far. You haven't shot it they're they're thinking maybe they don't feel it emotionally for the scene you back it off you you alter it you change it you maybe you put it in the middle that's collaborative that's uh i that's again everything that i i want to collaborate with people i i want to collaborate with everybody on the set personally and so you know uh if someone brings an idea that that is just undeniable you know to me the the idea that i don't want to hear is the the way that they did it on uh, Mission Impossible One, I don't want to hear that idea. I want to, <laughs> I want to, I want, I want to hear a new idea. Yeah. Um, so uh, we only have a few more minutes, but I wanted to talk to you about. It's not you haven't fully moved into directing because you still DP. You haven't like left the DP world, but you know you did move into directing some time ago. And uh, we actually talked to Eric Messerschmidt, who shot one of your episodes. Or yeah, I, I, the finale. Few, he he, yeah. he shot he shot me a few times. Yeah. Uh, I'm always interested in people who move from cinematography to directing and, you know, was, was moving to directing always in the plan or was it something that kind of developed as you worked uh, on TV and stuff and you, and you got to know the visual language of those shows? I've always thought about it, but you know, I'm a realist in a lot of ways, even though I sound like I'm, I'm like out of my mind. <laughs> I, I'm always very calculated on, on like my career path and, and the reality of what I, I am doing and what I can achieve. So I, on that show, Pretty Little Liars, they, they offered me in the first season to direct a, an episode of the second season. And, and you were uh, like, that, all view cam. The whole episode would be yeah, all yeah. view cams. Yeah, yeah. I, I probably didn't go that well, <laughs> I, I, I went pretty deep, but um, <laughs> that's how I got into DGA. That was my first episodic directing job. And I, I told my wife before that that I wasn't ready 
yet because I was just, again, I, I hadn't spent much time in television. I was learning and I, I didn't feel like I had all the, the skills like listening to dialogue. I mean, as DPs, sometimes you don't even listen to the dialogue. So I spent a couple of years, I, I do it now for anything I shoot. I listen, I have the headphones on and I listen, I train myself to listen to the dialogue. You know, so because again, you, uh, my first years of DPing, I didn't even have a headset on, and I was just, you know, you're mm. you're looking at the visuals 100, percent and you're letting the director deal with the dialogue and all that. That's just that's his job. And so I trained myself to listen to dialogue and be able to look at visuals and and listen to dialogue and really put myself in that space. So I felt now I was ready. I did it. I, I think it was very it was very successful. It was one of the still one of the top viewed episodes. It, and um, you know, but I always knew that I wanted to if I wanted to extend my directing of television, at least, I wanted to do it on the biggest dramas. I wanted, I, I'm a, I like drama and I wanted to do it on the biggest shows with the best writing. And so uh, I, I wasn't prepared to stay like there and direct two episodes a season or whatever. I left, uh, I started working with Noah on Fargo and, and Legion. And then I started directing Legion and then this year I directed four episodes of Fargo, which was amazing. And meanwhile, I directed a move, my first feature film in between that time. And then, you know, the, the momentum started just happening. And, and when you're the author of a show visually and you know, you know how the story is being told and, and it, it definitely helps you as a director that you have that strength, you know, uh, versus coming into another show and uh, adopting uh, their their visuals and their storytelling techniques, which I've done yeah. as well. I've done that. I've had to do that as well. But um, now, you know, there's been a lot of really great things that have happened actually in the pandemic for me on the directing front. I will probably be directing a lot more than shooting in the near future. Again, it's a natural progression. I'm ready to do that mentally, emotionally. Uh, I think uh, the, I have done enough work where people have seen what I'm about. And I, going back to maybe one of your early, early questions, I guess I've always wanted to tell stories and I just didn't know it. I actually think that that's a really great place to leave it. Uh, if people want to check out your work online, obviously they can go to Hulu, they can watch uh, Legion there, they can watch Fargo there. But is there any place where people can uh, see your work? Do you have a website or Instagram or something uh, where people can I, check I, your I, stuff out? Instagram, Dana, Dana uh, underscore Gonzalez underscore ASC is the Instagram. I have a website that I don't really update that often, but it's there, uh, which is just DanaGonzalez.com. My Instagram is a combination of uh, my life, my family, my art. And so it's not a, it's not the most curated far. Like some people have it just a incredibly beautiful curated Instagram, you <laughs> that's, know, that, that's fine. you know, and, and my, mine is like, I, I don't mind celebrating family and art because, you know, I have a, a strong message that you can have a family and you could create art and you could be in this business and there's room for all of it. And, um, you know, so it doesn't have to be a sacrifice uh, and you have to be lonely and miserable, <laughs> you know. Mm. And so um, I could learn a lot from that. No, I, you know, <laughs> I just I, I, I you know, I, my I'm very fortunate. My my daughter is a cinematographer, uh, Bella oh, Gonzalez. Wow. Uh, she went to AFI. She's a, a, oh, wow. a great cinematographer. My youngest, Paloma, is is about to go to film school for as a director uh, my wife is, uh, uh, teaches dance. So it's, you know, we're, we're very kind of live in a very art bubble world and, you know, and just like, again, my, my life kind of revolves around them and they, they've given me the, the wings to, to do what I do. And I, and I, I, 
I'm able to approach every project with a very, very, very clear mind because of that. And uh, I, I, I wish that on everybody. Well, uh, Dana, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much. So that was Dana Gonzalez. Hey, thank you so much for being on the show. That was so much fun. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what you're doing next. Yeah, and everybody go watch some Fargo. Yeah, absolutely. If you haven't caught up on Fargo, definitely, definitely go check it out. It's 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 a really smart, very you know, I, I want to say fun, but it's a it's a dark fun series. It, it's it's, I, got, it's it got, is a fun series. It, it is. It's it's, it's a dark I mean, it's and like fun. it's. Yeah, it's a dark, fun crime show. I, I I love what they do in the same sort so, of vibe that the original Fargo was. I mean, it's like it has it is it really doesn't connect to the, the the feature Fargo, but it is in that same universe and it's in that same world and it's got the same vibes and that's what's so fun about it. You know, the first season of Fargo did have a connection to the movie. I don't know if you remember it. It does have a connection to the movie, but I would say that it's not really based around that movie. It's not. No, I agree. I agree. But it did have a, a, a very tangential connection, but they were like really making sure. And I was through the whole first season. I was like, so is this cop supposed to be the, you know, the, the child of Francis McDormand, uh, you know, who, who she was pregnant with in the original or what's going on here? And uh, the answer was no. But I did like the connection they made with uh, with the money. Yeah. Anyway, that, that, was, that was nice, too. OK. You All know right, what so, time it is now. Oh, I do know what time it is, uh, because this is when I have to go to work. It's time to pay the bills. All right. All who right, is so, our sponsor today? Who's our fine sponsor? We got to thank the people over at Aperture who are who's making help helping make this show possible. And uh, I'd like to highlight one of their uh, products that doesn't get a lot of attention. And that's actually their light kits. They make these two bank and three bank light kits that come in a big sort of uh, Pelican style case. It's actually from another company, but it's a it's a wonderful case. Actually, it's a it's an SKB case, if I'm not mistaken. And that case has two or three of their Aperture 120D Mark II lights inside. Mm. And uh, for those of you out there who understand and recognize the power of having one of those lights, imagine having two or three in a case that's easy to roll around. They cost pretty much the same price of buying the lights uh, separately, just sort of together. That may be slightly more because they also include some stands and some other stuff. But uh, they've been so popular lately that we actually don't have them on our website. And uh, we actually scored some recently and uh, we kind of reserve them in our shop for people who call for it. So here, here's a little pro insider tip. You will see them backordered on the Aperture website. You'll see them backordered everywhere. These things are always in demand. But if you want them, if you call Hot Rod Cameras and say, hey, I heard that you guys have these Aperture 120D kits in stock, these multi-light kits, uh, find out what we've got because we We've kind of not been putting it out there because it seems like the moment we put it out there, boom, they're sold out. And we've been trying to do something a little extra for uh, the local clients who who need these things sometimes on on very short notice. It's like, oh, my God, my kit's not available and I got to go shoot an interview. And here's sort of like all the stuff in one case minus like sandbags and they can immediately go and rock and roll. So, you know, uh, you can go to the Aperture website and check out the LS 120D2 kits and uh, you can see all about them, but call Hot Red Cameras and we can we can hook you up if you're if you're interested. Wow. Yeah, definitely do that. And when you do that, demand a uh, Hot Rod T-shirt. Ooh, ooh, we're running low on shirts, actually. I, I uh, just found out the other day that very few shirts were down to the V-neck variety. So they, we have men's and women's and V-neck varieties. But yes, the uh, the traditional sort of like T-shirt sold out. And we've had several people lately. Some people from Toronto came in and uh, picked some up the other day. 
All right, Ben. So before we get into uh, the short ends, I think we should do a little bit of uh, fan mail. We got a we all got right. a, a nice uh, a nice message that came in via Instagram. Uh, I'm going to say thank you in advance to Robert. This is what Robert says. Uh, hey there. I'm not sure if Ben or Ilya directly run this account. We, we sometimes do. But I just want to say you guys are absolutely fantastic. And I've been devouring your podcast over the past two weeks. Wednesday is quickly becoming my favorite day of the week. Keep up the Whoa. great work, you guys. Cheers. Thanks, Robert. That was uh, Thanks, that Robert. Was, that was super awesome. And uh, I totally just followed you back now. So the the cinematographer. Robert, what, what's what, what's his uh, Instagram handle? Uh, it's RJ Cohen underscore. So thank you, uh, thank you, Robert. That's uh, super cool. I, really I will also it. follow Robert. And now short ends. All right, so Ben. It's time. It's time for short ends. Uh, you got a short end this week? I do have a short end, and uh, it's not directly film-related, but it is totally film-related, mm. if that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> so for years, I have been using the Notes app, the very popular Notes app, Evernote. Okay. And Evernote, a few years ago, understandably, like, I understand they got to make their money, and, and uh, they're a great company, and I have no, no beef with Evernote. But they changed their policy so you could have it on uh, the there's basically two tiers. There's a free tier and a pro tier The free tier. You can have on two machines and you can share infinite number of notes, blah, blah, blah. The pro tier, you can put it on all your machines and it does a lot more stuff, but it's like 80 bucks a year. Mm. And I was like, 80 bucks a year is just uh, it's too much for a notes app. You know, there's Apple Notes, which is free on iPhones, and I'm sure that there's the equivalent on Android, whatever. But I was like, I need a Notes app. Like, I want a Notes app that can sync on all my devices. I recently got an iPad, so I wanted to have that on my iPad, my desktop computer, my laptop, my phone, and uh, even my watch, if possible, right? Hmm. Uh, Evernote doesn't have a watch app, and I found an app called Bear, which is also uh, a subscription service, but it's like 15 bucks a year. Hmm. And it syncs onto everything, uh, which is cool. And I was actually able to take every notebook I ever made in Evernote and export it in a format that they do. It maybe took me a half an hour. And I've been using Evernote for over 10 years. Uh, it took me about a half an hour to export every single note in every single notebook and bring them all into Bear. They're basically the same. They don't call them notebooks. They organize by hashtags, but it looks exactly the same as a notebook. For all, for all intents and purposes, it's exactly the same as a notebook. And it does have a watch app and the watch app is possibly my favorite part of it because how often are you like walking around and you have a sudden brainstorm for a thing, whatever that thing is. Uh, for me, it might be a line of dialogue in a script I'm working on or a casting idea or it might it could be anything, literally anything. So they have a watch app. And if you have the Apple Watch, you launch the watch app, you make you, you tap on make new note and it uses speech to text. Uh, just like you're sending a text on your watch and uh, and you can also there also is a keyboard if you want to use it which I find onerous and I don't like it but I'll use speech to text and then like as soon as you do it if you're holding your iPad boom it pops right up the note pops up on your iPad on your desktop wherever you you have bare notes it syncs so so quickly uh, it has a bunch of different themes I went with one that was just kind of darkish looking because it was easier on the eyes and I use notes apps for all kinds of stuff. But when I'm working on a project of any kind, I always will create a notebook or in this case, a hashtag now where every note, every meeting, every everything gets kind of stored there. So I have access to it again. If I'm on my phone, if I'm on my iPad, if I'm at home, wherever the hell I am, I can access all of that information. I usually at the beginning of a meeting uh, will even like 
it's just a weird habit of mine. I'll take a picture on my phone of some inane thing in the room or something just so I can, when I look at that note, I'll remember that day and it enables you to embed photos. And in fact, when I brought the stuff over from Evernote, it brought all the embedded photos exactly the way they were. So uh, anyway, so that that is my, it's uh, a for real obsession. Like I've been very excited to find a notes app that I thought uh, worked really well, really seamlessly. And, uh, you know, 15 bucks a year, I think is a fair price to pay for something like that. Cause yeah, I don't, I don't use it every single day of my life compared to Evernote. That sounds incredible. That sounds like huge value. Yeah. Super it's, cool. it's pretty good. My guess is someone listening to, to this is like, wow, I wish I, I love Evernote, but I wish I could have it on more than one thing and didn't have to pay that much per year. Yeah. Uh, it, well, nice. So, sounds like uh, something very useful. I am not one of those uh, note people. I write things on paper and yes, then I type it into a computer later. And so I'm, I'm super old school and I have no fancy watch. So, uh, so yeah, that's just, that's how it is for me. I, I gotta say like, I love the Apple watch and it's great for health tracking and that's probably what I do 90% with it, but I'm always look. I feel like it is underserved. There aren't enough apps for like productivity and practical stuff on there so when i find one that i think is awesome and i really do feel like this is this is an awesome thing because again how often are you just walking around and you suddenly have a, a brainstorm or you're you know sit you're in trap you're stuck in traffic and you have an idea and you don't want to like pull your phone out or you don't want to pull out a pencil and paper and write it you just want to be able to record it quickly it's it's the fastest way to do it that i've ever seen Nice. Hey, uh, my short end this week actually is something that just happened uh, today. So uh, there's a good chance that uh, that our listeners have. Wait, heard is about it the this. Oscars? Because the Oscars just happened today. Nope, nope, not that. Oh, uh, something or, else happened today. Right. Uh, probably one of our favorite Australian camera manufacturers, Blackmagic, actually has released a new firmware to uh, for their very popular 6K, 4K, and 6K Pro line of pocket cameras. And basically what it does. So, is it so gives, what you're saying is suck at 12 K users. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, not necessarily. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, there is actually something in there for, for black magic, uh, 12 K users as well. But really oh, what okay. it's doing is it's upgrades the color science to what they call generation five, which is kind of a big deal. And they have a long list of other improvements, including uh, changing the histogram from just luminance to now RGB. So you can see what all of your channels are doing, red, green, and blue. Uh, it also adds an indicator to find out if your channels are clipping because as as you you may or may not know if you've got a camera and something is very bright in your your scene certain channels may clip before others and now you have mm -hmm. a, a way to identify that and adjust your exposure accordingly there's also a false color guide uh, lcd screen calibration settings uh, improves the autofocus that's there because uh, of course the autofocus that exists in these cameras has let's just say there was always room for improvement so improvement is happening that's and diplomatic that, yes there's also improved focus peaking visibility and fixes uh importing LUTs and uh there's a bunch of other sort of like stability and general sort of uh QC sort of things going on uh we will put a link to the firmware on the show notes at camnoir.com so if you go to this episode uh and go through the show notes there will be a link to the black magic website where you can see all the very very long list of fixes and there is uh, extra uh there's a Blackmagic Raw 2.0 spec that is now going to be unlocked inside the uh, Ursa Mini Pro oh, wow. 12K. I don't know exactly what that does. Uh, it's so new I haven't uh, gotten into it, but um, but there's a bunch of bug fixes and other things and some other bits of uh, support for products like Blackmagic Raw uh, coming from other cameras like the Nikon cameras and that sort of thing. So general performance and stability improvements. So if you are a Blackmagic camera user, and I know that there are a bunch of people are, out there are because it is one of the best bang for buck camera systems out there. 
there. Uh, ch- go to the, the Hot Rod. Uh, sorry, not the Hot Rod. Well, you can buy all your stuff at Hot Rod Cameras, but I was going to say, you go to the Cam Noir, the, the Cinepod website, and there'll be a link in the show notes to take you straight to the Blackmagic page where you can download that and upgrade your camera. Man, Blackmagic, I have to say, like, uh, m- most improved camera company over uh, a relatively short period of time. I, I still remember seeing their... Uh, their first uh, 2.5K production camera and the 4K camera. And do you remember yeah. the full size Ursa camera? The full. I do remember that. That was like uh, practically the size of the the Dalsa Origin. That was a big ass camera. <laughs> but then camera. they came out with they came out with the Mini, and I was like, oh, the Mini is like the size of a normal camera, and that's what everyone liked, of course. Yeah, Blackmagic um, is definitely uh, they definitely get some awards for most improved. They they start off one way, and then through iterations, they figure out exactly uh, where they need to be going. And the the current crop of cameras they are making are the best cameras they've ever made by far. I'm I'm curious. Are there any? There must be like some TV shows or movies that have been filmed on it that are like out out and you can see them there definitely are off the top of my head i can't think of many but i do know like south by there was a uh, a list of and sundance there's, there's different sort of festivals that list which cameras were sh- used for different movies and black magic is always quite popular i recall back in the day that uh MythBusters, i know you were a fan of that show they shot a Big lot fan. of myth myth busters on black magic cameras i don't know they did yeah did were, and those were some of the some of the earlier cameras as well too so well yeah because um, like MythBusters has been off the air for probably close to 10 years now and there's quite a bit of stuff that was shot with the original Blackmagic pocket camera to varying uh, degrees and results. Uh, I, I don't want to call out some things that don't look particularly good, but that was actually a pretty impressive 16 millimeter camera in a time when 16 millimeter digital cameras didn't have a lot of options. Your one choice, of course, really was digital Bolex, but digital Bolex and pocket original pocket camera, cinema camera, those were the, the two options. And I uh, wasn't a big fan of that camera. And uh, we shot an episode of 20 Seconds to Live on their first 4K camera camera Mm -hmm. and i thought the image looked great but that camera needed a lot of light and i know that they've fixed that problem since then but we you know for us doing a nighttime scene i know uh, george needed to uh, really light up the world because i think it i want to say it was like 300 iso or something like that you know so not bad if you're doing an exterior or whatever or you're shooting an interview or it's you know pretty standard stuff but if you're doing something cinematic and and dark, it's a lot harder to light that up. But they've definitely addressed those kinds of issues, and their sensors are way better now. And and they have three cameras, of course, that are Netflix approved, which is cool. They have the Blackmagic Ursa Mini 4.6K, and then the Ursa Mini Pro 4.6K G2. I know that uh, both of those are in there. And oh, 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 of course, they shot part of the Great. Actually, uh, you know, John Brawley, friend of the show, he used uh, some Blackmagic cameras on the Great. Oh, sweet. So yeah, so I know it was. I think it was Airy was the was one one cameras, and I think that some of the other cameras were uh, Blackmagic. And I know that he's a big fan; he uses them on on a lot of things. I mean, from the beginning, I think the only camera that I uh, the only one they ever made that I wasn't wild about the look of it was the first pocket camera. But mm-hmm. uh, I mean, like all of the cameras got a great look. I remember you showing me uh, you know stuff off of the two point five K original, and you were like, "You're not going to want to shoot in HD after you see this." <laughs> and I looked at it, and I was like, "It." I mean, I thought it looked really great. They've only gotten better, but I mean, it's it's a pretty fascinating company how they've kind of moved into the camera space moved into the editing space they're they're uh, slowly taking over uh, a certain sector of how stuff gets made especially independent stuff yeah uh, abs- absolutely and uh, i do know that they're being tested for for big network shows as well too because i know i i set up one i set up a test for them not that long ago and uh, i i know that people are paying really close attention to their latest and greatest that they've uh, they've come out with which is all really which is all really good stuff 
So cool. Well, I think I think that uh, wraps us up. Uh, congratulations again to Best Cinematography uh, Academy Award winner Eric Messerschmidt. And uh, Ilya, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Red Cameras. Uh, HotRedCameras.com is the official website. Uh, I'm there usually Monday through Friday and generally chatting with people about what kind of gear they need, uh, helping people plan out uh, studio builds uh, or in-house corporate productions, that sort of stuff. I do uh, an awful lot of that. I have a, a team of 12 now, I can't believe, but yeah, 12 people Sweet. who... Uh, also are highly technically competent and very friendly and can also help with all those sorts of things if I'm not around. But uh, yeah, find find me over at Hot Red Cameras. And if you do uh, mention the show, uh, we've got a t-shirt for you at least for a little bit longer. We have a few t-shirts Probably left. a V-neck. Let's be Pro- honest. It'll probably, probably be a V-neck. V-neck. I, like I mean, like, I, I'm not... I'm, there's nothing wrong with V-neck. It's just some people pull off a V-neck. I don't, I don't wear a V-neck. I, I feel like some people uh, make it work and some people don't. <laughs> All right, Ben, there's, where can people find there's definitely, you? definitely, like, in a Seinfeldian kind of a sense, there's definitely V-neck people and, and non-V-neck people. What do you call it? Round neck? I don't know what you call it. Yeah, Crew neck? You know what? Yeah, I I, I just say yeah, standard neck, maybe. I I, I don't know. But yeah, the, yeah. I think that... I, just, I, think that, I, I am not a V-neck person, for sure. Oh, but okay. uh, but uh, there, are some, there are people who, who uh, V-neck just... They put it on and it just lights them up like like a like a Christmas tree. <laughs> I think you could be a V-neck person. I've never seen you in a V-neck, but I think you could pull it off. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to test those waters. Maybe. Um, <laughs> where can people so you find, can find you? Find, yeah. Where, 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 where are you, Ben? Please find me at benrockonline.com. You'll find all my social media stuff. I think uh, a bunch of people from the show have been adding me on the social media and I always appreciate it. And, uh, that's probably the best place to find me. You can find me on Twitter at Neptune salad and I'm on uh, Instagram at Benjamin underscore rock because I didn't really think that Instagram thing was going to take off. <laughs> it hasn't. Not really. So. Yeah, and you can you can find me at TikTok, not at all, because I don't really use TikTok. <laughs> oh yeah, Snapchat either? No, no, not a not snap. Snapchat. I feel like Snapchat was designed to confuse anyone uh, <laughs> over millennial age. Yeah, you're you're right. Uh, okay, so uh, Ben, let's thank some people. Who who should we be thanking? Number one, a number one, uh, Alana Cody. Without whom, the show would not be happening on the on the pace and level. And you know, she's constantly uh, lining up just these amazing cinematographers. I was so proud of how many of the best cinematography uh, nominees we uh, had interviewed on the show, and uh, that's a direct reflection on the hard work of Alana Cody and and, and how much she cares about what she's doing. Uh, we should also thank Ben Katz, who this week, you and I did not make his life very easy, uh, but he's our, <laughs> our editor. He's an amazing editor, and uh, he makes us sound like not imbeciles sometimes. Uh, to the best of his ability, given the materials, the imbecilic material we give him, he makes us sound less imbecilic. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you know <laughs> it doesn't matter sometimes sometimes there, there there's no hope for us i certainly no, no, feel like it's night yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you can't polish a turd and uh, uh, actually and, on and, mythbusters they proved you can that's true that's true there was an episode about polishing a turd i love yeah, mythbusters it, so pretty, much pretty good episode yeah <laughs> rest in peace grant imahara and lastly, we should thank Kazal Trakshi, who is most likely not listening to this episode. Although sometimes he does. You never know. No, but I appreciate that strangers are now trolling him about not listening, which is great. So they should. Yeah, Anyone they should. who knows Kaze should give him shit about not listening to the show. Because, I mean, you know, we feature his music and we talk him up. And honestly, we just say we, thank we, you. We, Maybe he's, we, hold him, we hold him in the highest esteem. So Very high regard over here, for sure. All, yeah. right. All right. So I think that just about does it for this week. So thank you so much for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com.
Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.